Welcome back, everyone, to a brand new episode of the Crypto Muay Thai Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Brookins. I am super excited to welcome our guest today, Daniel Kim. Daniel's the head of revenue at SoFox, which is a liquidity provider, or dare I say, uh, my prime broker for the fund that I manage, Valley and Dara Digital Assets, um, based out of San Francisco. Uh, Daniel is a great guy. I've known him for a good bit. I'm super excited to have him on the podcast. How are you doing today, Daniel? Doing well, Chris. I'm super excited as well. Saw your other podcast as well, so really excited, ecstatic to be on. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we can we can continue to to get it better, to get it better and better. So, um, so for some of the listeners that might not know uh, who you are, or, or maybe some of your your background, just give us like a quick two minute overview of like your background, and then also um, like a natural sort of launching pad into how you went down the rabbit hole that is cryptocurrency ecosystem or digital asset ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so I would say like, like most folks, um, I actually started in capital markets, started my career in state street and BNP, um, spent about a little over a decade there on the interest rate derivative side. Um, but during that time, like, you know, I was there during the recession of 07, 08, kind of saw a lot of things change. And in my, in my view, I was like, all right, like, I've been like, I, I was seeing a lot of things going on where I was like, and I was kind of questioning the financial market. Um, and coincidentally during that time, I was also working on a side startup, um, you know, completely out, um, outside of crypto, it was an e-commerce site. But one of the biggest things was, you know, it was actually the payment side of things where, you know, when there are chargebacks, ACH and credit cards, there's a lot of chargeback issues. So I was looking for another solution. And that's actually kind of how I came about to, to crypto Bitcoin. Kind of realized that, you know, Bitcoin is immutable. It can't be changed, can't be reversed. Um, sound like a good solution. So I kind of went through that rabbit hole. Um, and when I was diving more into it, I was like, wait a minute, like, you know, forget the e-commerce. Bitcoin is a huge new thing. Financial markets going to completely change. And looking at my background, I was like, man, this makes complete sense. Now, how do I get into this space, right? Um, because I remember like right when I found Bitcoin, I started, I looked at like, you know, what companies are out there, Coinbase was out there. I'm like, all right, let me look at Coinbase. I don't have an engineering background. Everyone was hiring engineers. I'm like, crap, like, how, how the hell do I get involved? Um, so I just kept searching, talk, started talking to people, got involved. And then coincidentally, one of my close buddies, uh, Bobby Cho, who was the ex-head of um, Cumberland um, and started at um, Genesis as well, um, you know, he was moving from second market to Paxos Ipit. Um, and he asked me, he's like, Hey man, like I'm going to this company. Uh, do you want to join me? Cause I know like, you know, you, you talk Bitcoin, you like Bitcoin and you come from the capital market markets background. It makes sense. He sent me a, a Craigslist ad <laughs> saying, Hey, like in the job description, I was like, dude, this is sketchy. <laughs> but I, I met the guys, you know, they were creating the first trust company in crypto, moving the headquarters from, um, Singapore to um, New York. They got the New York DFS trust license, uh, becoming that first one in New York. Um, and, you know, we helped them. So that's how I basically started my career. I came in, came in as the operation side, helping that transition. And then from there, uh, worked with all the institutions. Um, you know, if it packs, I started moving away towards going, focusing on the uh, blockchain side of stuff. And then, I, and then I moved over to Gemini as the head of sales. Uh, and while I was there, you know, my career from that point was, you know, really dealing with institutional clients, right? We were focused on working with hedge funds, banks, and so forth. And at that time, you look at it, and this is around 2015, 2016. And I was looking at, the, I was looking at the market. And I'm like, man, like, you know, a lot of people are saying, 
what's blocking crypto adoption is regulation. But at that time, it was actually like, you know, regulation was a part of it. But if you look at it, it was like, it's actually infrastructure, man. Like, you know, you want these players to come in, they're not going to want to onboard with all these different um, crypto exchanges. Um, market's completely fragmented. Everything is a little bit different. And, and coming from my background, I was like, wait a minute, like, this is what a prime broker can do. This is what, this is what people need. Um, and it turns out one of my first clients was SFOX. Um, and they were first building out a aggregation platform. And, you know, after that, I came to them and I was like, you know, let's build out a prime brokerage. Like, this is what it makes sense. Um, so in 2017, I joined SFOX and the idea was, let's be that first prime dealer, uh, make it as simple as possible, provide that secure, easy way into entering the market. Um, rather than having companies open accounts at all these different exchanges, just integrate with one platform, get access to all these liquid provider, liquidity providers and create that uniform process. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that's, that's a very robust and logical uh, sort of way that you got involved here, which typically, well, I should say sometimes isn't necessarily the case whenever we're speaking with other guests. So that's actually, it makes complete sense and it's very, very easy to follow with that. So you're now you're at S Fox and you, you have the idea to, uh, and, and I totally agree with you. And even in some capacity today, the infrastructure has gotten so much better, but there's even still a, a few chasms to jump before you really start getting a lot of those large institutions with multi-billion dollars under management jumping in. So I can only imagine what it must have been like whenever you were really back there at the beginning phase of getting SBOX off the ground. With that being said, you've got the idea. You're like, okay, let's see how we can implement this. What are some of the initial um, hurdles that you guys had to go through? Because obviously, like life and tech, but also specifically within the digital asset space, nothing really ever goes according to plan usually. And there's always like some kind of like iterative process to where you thought you knew something, but then it didn't actually sort of pan out. Yeah, yeah no, that's a good question. I mean, look, I think like most people say it's, you know, when we first started off, people were like, oh, like I could build out my own smart routing solution. Like that's like, you know, I have my engineers, I can build it out. Um, but it's, it's easier said than done. Um, Cause this is going back to the point where that infrastructure just isn't there. Because if you look at every single exchange, every single exchange has a different API and every infrastructure is very different. What their rate limits are, um, you know, what, like what method are they support? Like, are they supporting REST? Are they supporting WebSocket or FIX? Um, and what that implementation is. Everyone has a different implementation. So there's no uniformity in that. And so when we were building it out, the biggest, you know, surprising thing was it's man, like, you know, there's only the throughput can only be handled so much. Right. So you like, you know, we had hundreds of millions of trades go through our platform, but in the beginning, dude, there were so many headaches. Like, you know, you would try to put in a trade and try to put a smart routing order trade across, you know, Kraken, Coinbase, Gemini, and a few others. And, half of those orders would get rejected. Not, and it could be either because the, the price feed was incorrect from their end, it was, there, was a, there was a lag, or it just got rejected because there was just too much throughput. Um, and so working, with, working on those mechanics and making sure, all right, like how, do we, how do we improve that? How do we work with it? And you know, we could only do so much on our end, so we actually had to spend a lot of time working with each of these liquidity partners and making sure that their feeds to us specifically um, is, is as optimal as possible. Um, and you know, today now it's, you know, fortunately for us, because we started so early, um, we, we built these strong relationships with them. Um, and that, that pipes and plumbing has been completely cleaned out. And, you know, as you've probably seen that, you know, 
every trade that goes through our platform. It actually happens very seamlessly without any issues. Um, and that's what, that's, what, that, and that's, what, that's what we'd work towards. It was just so surprising because we didn't think it was going to be that bad in the beginning. Um, but that required our entire team to spend, you know, years on fixing that and, and cleaning those pipes. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting because I don't have a technical background, much like yourself. You know, I'm a career finance individual in some frame or fashion. And, and also, you know, had a stint as business development within a high growth startup that was based out of San Francisco, very similar to yourself, because I didn't have a tech background. I was like, okay, but I know how to sell. So that's kind of how I, I made my, my way into that particular space, which I've since used here. The point being is that because I didn't have that, but I heard a lot of these horror stories from maybe some other early stage quant funds that were trying to build out that functionality themselves, but kept, you know, essentially ran into the problems that you were talking about with the different APIs, the call limits, um, yeah. bad connectivity. Sometimes the exchanges would just switch the API without yeah. notifying the people, you know, the, the developers on it, like all these crazy, crazy things. So instantly I knew whenever we were standing up Valley and Darrow that this was not going to be something that we were going to necessarily want to handle in house. We were going to try to see if we could delegate it to someone. And then obviously through, through, you know, trials and, and tribulations and error or, or, or trial and error, we ended up at, at S box, which you guys, Getting there and starting there at the beginning um, really helped clean out a lot of that work. But we heard a lot of those horror stories um, at the beginning. With that being said, do you guys find that there is that it, it's like you know is it more money, more problems now that the infrastructure has gotten past you know the initial hurdle of issues or or is it you know and then it's clear sailing or is it like all right we got past this level. Now there's this additional level because maybe the type of investors that are coming uh, into the space now, are maybe a little bit more, uh, they demand a little bit higher quality service because they're more sophisticated than typical retails. So is, how's the state now from your particular perspective, given you're there at the beginning, work through some of the hard stuff. Um, is it, is it kind of like greener pastures because you've gotten through those, those hard times, or is it just, you know, the next layer of, of issues that are inevitable as the space kind of like grows and matures? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think it's different types of issues. What I will say is like, it, it has become greener pastures in terms of like integration and so forth, because, you know, we've been fortunate, like, again, like we've been very fortunate. We started early. Um, and to be honest, like, you know, there were, in the, in the early days from 15, 16, in fact, there were various different traditional investors already involved. People may not realize this, but like family offices, prop shops, they were actually already testing the waters back in the day, right? Um, it's just gotten more adopted recently um, in the past in past years. But back in the day, privately, there were all these funds and, and active traders involved in the market. You know, you did see some of the major prop shops already trading and testing the waters. And fortunately for us, given where we are at the time since we started in 2015, we actually saw, you know, we had those type of clients um, and we saw the different strategies and needs um, from what they wanted, right? Um, and they put in the throughput into our system. And so because of that, of what we've experienced, um, we saw, we pretty much were able to meet the demands and develop our systems um, to, to address that. So when I say the, 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 the 
the pasture got a little greener is because we work with all these exchanges to make sure that, you know, that throughput and everything that those guys required was met. And because of that, you know, over time, you know, when the exchanges started seeing more adoption on their end, they started improving their infrastructure as well. And that just helped, that just ultimately helped us. Um, so that, so in that end for us, it's been, it's been a lot easier. If anything now, it's just that we're seeing more improvements on, you know, we're just seeing more improvements on our API through the exchanges and other farmers that we work with. In fact, it becomes a little bit easier because things are starting to get a little bit more uniformed or more expected that, you know, these guys have WebSockets, these guys have um, fixed and there are no rate limits or it's limited to the point that it can be used. Um, so that's what kind of, that's basically what we've been seeing. And it's been, it's becoming a lot easier on our side, but the only reason why is because we've been able to develop that core issue, right? What I would say is when we've seen other people do the same, um, they're encountering some of these similar issues that we've dealt with in the past. And that's primarily because they, they likely just didn't have that same experience um, that we went through. Um, so, you know, you need to actually, unfortunately, you need to go through those pains um, and then it gets improved. Um, now, are there new issues that do arise from this? Um, yeah, there are, there are, right? because, you know, you do see that clients want, um, you know, they're like clients have different needs in terms of different types of order types, or they need something that's a little bit more, you know, they want faster, they want, they want to be able to co-locate or whatnot. Um, and so I think that doesn't make it more difficult. It just adds new features that maybe we didn't expect. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes, that makes total sense. Um, you mentioned it a couple times, but I think the topic of liquidity is, is often, not often talk about, talked about and not often understood nearly enough. So I think the general premise of a prime broker for anyone that doesn't necessarily know what that is, in addition to solving all the headaches of that might come from a technological standpoint where you don't need the engineering talent to be able to plug into, let's just say a half a dozen different exchanges with different APIs and different rate limits and blah, 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 blah. It's also, you now have the ability to pull liquidity together so that you can move around larger block sizes, maybe get more efficient prices in terms of trade fees, execution prices, less slippage, all those types of things, which I think a lot of times is talked about, but isn't necessarily understood fully. So given that's kind of like the business that you guys are in, I would love for, to just like kind of get your take um, on that and also hear it through your, your own words uh, as well. Cause I think it's very important for any listeners to like really have a full appreciation um, for it, given it is still kind of a little bit of a, a, an issue within this market, but gradually being solved more and more with uh, participants like your, yourself with Soapbox. Yeah, definitely. And it's, you know, it, it's actually really funny. It's, you know, you would think, you know, and it's a good point, right? Like liquidity isn't actually understood, but honestly, I would have expected that more sophisticated funds would have realized what liquidity is, but surprisingly, sadly, people, like a lot of people don't really understand what liquidity is. And it's kind of, it's, it's quite surprising. I mean, um, because some people just may look at and in one factor, but liquidity is, encompasses a number of factors, right? It's not just price. It's not just depth. Um, you know, people just may look at volume or whatnot, but I'll go into all of that, right? So, you know, to me, liquidity, you know, there, it, there's a number of factors. It's, there are, it's a trading volume, it's the spread, it's the order book depth. And when I depth, I mean by what's, what's a slippage, right? If you buy 10 Bitcoins, you know, you're not going to just get whatever the top of the price is. It's what that net price is going down in 10 Bitcoins. Um, the, the market activity, 
Um, so a lot of those components matter. Now, what we do see in the space today, it's, um, you know, some people may look at liquidity, they're, all they're focusing on is trading volume per exchange, which is completely inaccurate, right? Because honestly, if you're one trader, you can trade, you know, 0.1 Bitcoin constantly and turn that over to $20 million, right? If you were running some algorithm, you could trade that. So that doesn't represent any type of liquidity. All it does represent, a portion of it is, is that there is a lot, a lot of activity going on. So if you were placing a, a limit order or a make it order, the likelihood of your order getting filled quicker is higher than, a, than an exchange that you know, had lower volume. Because what that volume does represent is, is that there's a lot of activity going on to an exchange. Um, the second piece is, is the spread, right? So, you know, the tighter the spread, the better the market is because that allows them that there's, gonna be, there's, there's more competitiveness uh, on the exchange. Um, when you're looking at exchange, you know, someone may say, oh, these guys have the best price. These guys have the worst price. Um, and that spread really does matter. So when you look across the exchange, you can see that there are some exchanges that have you know, a penny wide spread versus other exchanges that have, you know, a $12 spread. Um, and so that, and that's, that's a part to think about. Because, you know, when people look at exchanges, they're like, oh, but this exchange has the, you know, these, this exchange has the best price um, and they have a penny spread. But that also means that they don't have the, then by means that they have the best selling price and they won't have the best buying price, right? Um, and so I think that's people miss, miss, you know, miss that idea. And then the other factor is, is again, going back to order book depth. If you are going to trade, you know, 10 Bitcoins, 20 Bitcoins, you can't just look at the top of the book and you can't just look at the spread. Um, if you're going to be one directional, you got to really see, take in consideration, find that 10 Bitcoins, how deep is that going to go into your order book and what that price is going to be, right? Because that top price may only be representing 0.1 Bitcoin or like in $100 or whatever. Um, and then for you to fill that 10 Bitcoin or $1 million, um, it's going to go deeper and that actual cost, it's going to be a net cost that's actually a lot less than you expect. Um, the other side of it, lastly, is then it's the, the, it's the trading fees. People always actually forget that there are trading fees associated with, you know, with any, any exchange. And, you know, you're looking at, like, I'm going to get, the, I, I could see that this exchange has the best price, but then you're forgetting that there's an, associ there's an, there's an associated trading fee with that. Um, so when, I'm, when we talk to clients and we talk to retail investors or, you know, all across all types of users, we try to explain to them, making it as transparent as possible. Like, look, this is what the market is. Um, and part of that is the aggregation. You see that you could see the individual exchanges where it's saying, you know, what one price would get. But if you get aggregate, if you aggregate everything, you can naturally see a, a tighter spread, but also improvement in liquidity in terms of order book depth. Gotcha. I, I think all those points are so, so vital for, uh, anyone that's looking to participate. So obviously more sophisticated, the investor, they need to understand it, but also the retail investor too, because just like you said, it's very, it's a common misunderstood uh, situation is that slippage and trading fees matter, especially given this sort of notion, which isn't necessarily endemic solely to the digital asset space, but also all financial markets is that it's a, it's sort of like a DIY type thing where, you know, in no other profession where would you be able to go grab a book off the shelf and think like, Hey, I can do it myself, especially in terms of day trading, actively trading and hitting home runs, whether that's, you know, a one X, a two X, a five X type return, you wouldn't do that from a doctor perspective. You wouldn't do that from a car mechanic perspective or anything like right. that. So 
financial markets are very much a DIY, especially in terms of a market that is still very much caters to the retail investor. So I think it's, it's very critical to understand some of those plumbing issues, uh, not just from a liquidity perspective, but also like what you're talking about from a fee perspective as well. With that being said, um, one of the, one of the things that kept coming back to me, so I guess it's like a two part question is one of the things that kept coming back to me, uh, is the thought whenever I had a conversation with, um, with John Benson from Wakeham Capital is he was describing liquidity in this market, like an accordion to where it's like there, but if there's any sort of like, Oh shit moment, it quickly, yeah, it quickly evaporates. So how have you guys seen that or put um, you know, things in place to address that for your clients, whatever it may be. And then on top of that, what are some of the stories or experiences that you had with this most recent uh, flash crash uh, yeah. from March 12th and, and March 13th? Well, so that's, that's, a, that's, a that's the beauty of the prime brokerage model, right? It's because you're, you're completely right. When you're looking at certain exchanges or OTC providers, when these when these market movements happen, you see that court accordion effect, right? And in that sense, like that's the biggest thing. Like when those when those markets happen, when those events happen, you can't get you can't get in or out of position. You're kind of pretty much screwed, right? Um, and so for us, like that was probably one of the more important things that we wanted to solve when we created this business. Um, we kind of we saw them we saw them at the beginning because they were flash crashes were happening so way more often than than before than it is today um and what our thing what the prime brokerage model the aggregation model does solve is is that it when you see the accordions it doesn't happen to, it, it doesn't happen across all the exchanges or otc providers um it happens to maybe one or two um the main ones that happen and it, it changed from time to time so by us aggregating everything that actually reduced what well, we saw that, that there's a there was a big improvement because when that does happen, say it's, you know, exchange A, um, when exchanges A liquidity basically goes away, you still have exchange B, C, and D to back them up. Um, and that created a lot of, that created a lot of value because when in those markets, in this market today, you have to accept that that is a risk that, that that's there today, right? That there are exchanges and OTC providers that when markets move, it will, it will, it will change actively. Now you that and that and that's the reason why you need to have all these aggregated liquidity providers because it's not going to happen to all of them, but once you remove one, you'll still have backups to to trade with. What's interesting though is is that we do see this more often happening to OTC providers, and for good reason, right? Because OTC providers are taking principal risk, and so when markets do, when markets are acting up, they need to they need to secure themselves and hedge themselves, right? So they'll make sure that when those markets happen, they're going to widen out their spreads. So what you usually see in our in our book is is that during non-volatile times, OTC providers will always be at the top of the book, and which makes sense because they are competitive. They will compete for flow, and they will price themselves as best as possible. However, when price markets are moving very quickly and there's a lot of activity going on, there's a flash crash. They immediately expand out, and you won't even see them in the book. And for that, that's because we're given reason, right? Because they're not then they realize they're not going to take a big position and then get stuck with it. But the, their whole point is being able to know when I can take a position and how, how, not, and how I can e easily get out of it. Um, and so that's, kind of, that's basically what we saw. So when the flash crashes actually happened for us, like speaking specifically, uh, that was probably one of our best days because we didn't go down at all. Um, 
you know, we were operating constantly because, you know, we did have some exchanges go down, but all the other, all the other liquidity providers that we have, which are, you know, we have over 12, were still operating and our spreads were still tight. Our spreads were still there. Um, the exchanges were still operating. So that's what, that's what really showed the value of our system. That's great. To, that's great to hear. I mean, we were, we were trading algorithmically through, through that particular day. So we didn't experience any, any issues from, from our side uh, with, with SoFox as well, but I wasn't sure. Obviously there's, there's a difference between, between like kind of what you're seeing from our side also from what you're seeing from your end as well, given so many exchanges, particularly derivatives exchanges, uh, were having to essentially shut down the engine given the haywire uh, that, was, that was occurring. So whenever you're, I hear that systems that you have put in place to solve this particular issue still functions even in, in very atypical scenarios three four five sigma events eh, maybe like two two or two to three sigma events and in, in crypto um that's that's still very very good to hear and it's like that's how you guys are fulfilling on that initial value prop of where you saw how to take the space um moving forward with liquidity so that's really really interesting yeah it's it's like it's kind of scary to be honest though right it's like you think about it like and like yeah it is very interesting that we're, we're doing this and that's like that's the goal but it's it's scary to know that you know the markets aren't as liquid as people like the markets are, like the markets are liquid when times are good and markets aren't volatile but then you know when volatility does happen a lot and smart in our market it, there's it happens often um it can get scary because if you're trading on one single exchange um dude, you could be locked in and not have access to your account for God knows how long, right? And if, you're, if you don't have, like, our markets move fast. Um, if you don't have, if the exchange goes down, you're pretty, you're, you're pretty much screwed. So, like, that's something, that's something that people, I, I hope people consider and realize that, like, there is, the, there is that risk. It's not just, there's people, people always worry about the security of their coins, but you also got to realize the security of, you know, when can you actually trade? Um, and, you know, I think that's something that people need to start considering. Got you. So that sort of line of logic um, takes me to somewhere that I wasn't originally thinking, but I guess technically competitors for you guys, although I don't know if there's any a full prime brokerage for the DeFi space. So for those that don't know, this is essentially the year of DeFi or decentralized finance for, for long. And one of the, so essentially all that means is the individual, the trader, or the fund behind it, has, they self-custodian their, their own fund account. So the exchange would never necessarily uh, come into control or touch the client's funds. With that being said, it's very good, or in theory, it's very good from a security standpoint because exchanges have been known to be hacked uh, within this particular space. But given the volume on it, is very very nascent which doesn't equate to liquidity as we just learned talking to daniel um it's been it's been a little bit slow in attracting more and more users to it and more volume and, and more liquidity with that being said i know there's a lot of dex aggregators so decentralized exchange aggregators that have cropped up this year and have since kind of gotten into a very competitive um 
competition with with one another do you look at those as competition something that can realistically um, take market share away from companies like yours and or do you look at it almost from the next thing to look at to potentially disrupt yourselves kind of how coinbase is looking at it whenever they purchase paradox so they're the biggest or one of the biggest uh, centralized exchanges, but they can kind of see it given the ethos, which is towards decentralization, and they're gradually nibbling uh, more and more within the de- decentralized finance space. Yeah, I mean, so I don't. So to be honest, I, I don't see. We don't see Dex decentralized exchanges as as a competitor. I think it's going to be a added value service, right? Because there are different types of clients that are going to be used DEXs. And I, I'm, heck, I'm all for DEXs. I think decentralized exchanges, decentralized environment um, is something that's needed. Um, and I'm very sure it's going to work out to be, right? Because with the capabilities of what it can do, it's quite amazing. However, there are some drawbacks, right? Like, like I would say right now, the people who are mainly using decentralized exchanges aren't necessarily, like there are some that are trying to actively trade on it, but these guys are more individual traders, retail traders. Um, experiencing and trying to play with it. But institutions, you know, you really got to ask the question, like who is the decentralized exchanges for and who will use it, right? Right right now, I, I see it as individuals, individuals who, you know, want to be decentralized, don't don't have their, you know, don't have their own bank accounts, want to have control of the funds. And that's going to be more on the individual retail level. Will institutions get involved? I think eventually um, when the user experience in the infrastructure improves on that end, um, but for now, you know, I think it's a more of a complementary service where, you know, we're keeping a close eye on it. We love what, we love what they're doing. And, you know, hopefully it's going to be something that we do get involved with. Um, because I, th- I think it, they still have a, I think there just needs to be, a, you know, there's still a couple of years out, right? Because you've seen, like any new product that comes out there, there's going to be some issues. Um, we've seen some hacks with it. Um, and, you know, same thing when centralized exchanges first came out, right? Think about when we, when we first launched, like when crypto first launched um, with all the exchanges, they stand had a hack, a few other exchanges that have hacked. Those are growing pains. Um, and that's something that DeFi and decentralized exchanges are going to need to go through. And until all of that is all fixed and all the kinks are taken out, are cleaned up, you're not going to really have that, that, that true mass adoption or institutional adoption because that's, that's part of a risk, right? Um, but you usually have like in any, any new market you usually have the, the individuals who come in who are willing to take that risk and test the platform out and so those are the guys i think are, are, are using it and you know i, I think that's going to be a, a, a interesting market to, to explore in the coming years to be honest like i think right now it's like what 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 DeFi has done this year is phenomenal it's really exciting um i just can't wait to see exactly you know how much how much more it matures for sure. I tend to agree with you in that particular perspective. I, I, I'm very excited about the idea of decentralized finance. Obviously, the runaway price increases are always something that, that sort of gives pause because it has the ability to affect a lot of retail investors whenever the inevitable sort of exuberance begins to die down and it starts to come back down to earth. But ultimately, I think the theoretical nature of decentralized finance i'm very very excited to see how that is going to shake out especially as it evolves and goes through some of its growing pains with um sort of as you're talking with that where do you see the next sort of value add service for prime brokers like yourselves um i know i think i saw an announcement 
maybe a couple months ago that you were getting into the separately managed account business. Is, is that something that you think there's huge opportunity for? I personally think that there's a huge opportunity for SMAs uh, within this particular market. Um, so is that, is that an area that, um, that obviously was validated enough for you to, for the, the company to make a push in there? And have they seen that since they've rolled it out? And is there um, an additional area beyond that that maybe uh, I, I just haven't seen or you think might be the next great value added service for prime brokers like you guys? Yeah, so, you know, I'll, I'll clarify one thing, right? Like, I, I don't think, um, and I think most people agree is that, you know, we're still in the early stages for prime, prime brokerage is still in the early stages. Um, and I don't think there is a single true prime brokerage that covers everything like you would have in the, from the traditional sense, right? Because if you consider prime services, that's cap intro, that is capital efficiency, um, portfolio, portfolio compression, and a whole variety of different services, right? Um, and in our end right now, we are adding in other, other, other services to get to that point. Um, you know, first piece was really um, capital efficiency, um, clearing, and trade execution. And then the second piece that we saw that from natural client demand was the SMA, was the SMA piece. Um, and so with that, you know, what we did start seeing is we started seeing more registered investment advisors, you know, even investors asking, you know, I need a structure to, to get involved so that my client's funds or my funds can be segregated, but I still want to achieve that same performance of me, you know, investing into a fund. Because, you know, as you probably know, it's when you invest in a fund, a pool of funds, um, you know, you don't really see what activity is happening until the end of the month or end of the month or quarterly reports, depending on what's reported. Um, and what we see is like investment advisors and investors that are investing in funds kind of want to have funds, um, you know, naturally move, move into a segregated pool so that they get full visibility, but, ex but still experience that same uh, performance. Um, and so we kind of, and that's the reason why we developed that. Like we do have certain large SMA managers managing I would say, I confidently say it's the top 1% funds in crypto um, using our SMA solution, uh, which is great because the reason why they came in was they were like, because the amount of money that they have, they don't want to move funds to a third party. They wanted to make sure that they had control and see what, what activity was going on. And so what we did was we created this SMA solution where we handled the full banking, the full onboarding and so forth as if that investor is the client of Vestbox, and then they can invite a manager to manage to trade on their behalf on, on the account. So that manager has pure trading access, but then, you know, the, the investor could have, you know, withdrawal access, control access and so forth. So that was very interesting. Um, and we're, we're starting to see more and more interest on that. Um, well, what we're hoping is, is that from the RA and wealth management side, um, that's going to grow even further. What we do see is that our conversations with these, with these groups um, continues to grow, but there is a sticking point, which is the, the clarity of regulation because if you're an RA or you're a wealth manager, there are certain compliance regulations that you have to, to meet. And unfortunately on the U S side, there isn't too much clarity on that. Right. So from a client standpoint, their job is to cover their ass. Right. And they're not going to take a risk that they're unfamiliar with. And that's why you kind of see something. That's why you kind of see that the adoption of, you know, grayscale GBTC and their EBTC um, um, investment products have grown because, Compliance can easily approve that. They're like, look, like it's traded on a, it's, it's it's traded on the exchange. Um, it has an ISIN. We can approve that. You can give it to your exposure. But to get direct um, um, 
exposure for the underlying of Bitcoin and crypto. Um, that's something that's still difficult. Um, but we're hoping with like, you know, at least getting, getting that SMA infrastructure, the first leg, and then hoping that the regulatory side will get cleared up where compliance feels more comfortable with it. Yeah, I, I think SMAs are incredibly, um, I think they're a low friction product that can help bring the additional waves of investors into this particular space because even, even the people that don't want to go full bore into digital assets, maybe they just want to dip their toes in Bitcoin, just get a feel to see what everyone is talking about, what all the buzz is talking about, or Ethereum or Litecoin or anything like that. SMAs are a very low risk way to do that if you feel like you have a value add financial advisor or certified financial planner or wealth manager. Obviously, Tyrone Ross, I had him on the podcast. He comes to the top of the mind as someone to where you would have confidence in doing that. But also, even for funds like myself and other funds as well, that's a very uh, fric not frictionless, but a lower friction point to be able to onboard some clients that are looking to get exposure to the space but might not necessarily want to uh, deal with the inevitable uh, hoops that you have to jump whenever you onboard with a, with a hedge fund. So I'm incredibly bullish the SMA space and I'll be very, very curious to see how that progresses um, with SoFox as, as well as like to see the overall uh, palette for it within digital asset ecosystem as well. Yeah, no, you, like, you, and I think you brought up a good, a lot of good points, Chris, because, you know, like, like, like one of the biggest things is it's a lot of these investors want to get in, but they are so afraid of how to, how the process works, right? Like how do I trade or how do I hold my crypto? How do I manage it and so forth? Um, and in fact, like they just actually want other people to manage it on their behalf, right? So if they work with you guys like Valiandero, who is fully aware of how crypto works, how to trade efficiently and so forth, then that makes them feel more comfortable because at the end of the day, honestly, like all these guys really just want that exposure. They see it across all, all across media and everything. And the thing that blocks them is, is that they're afraid of because the media likes to embellish and, and market, you know, it, the complications of being hacked or how to manage it, that, they, that, that they're, they're too afraid. But with an SMA solution, they realize that, look, like you're telling me I could get direct exposure, have control, but then have other people, professionals, manage it who have experience in, in crypto management on my behalf. By all means, let me like let me try to do that, and I think that's been like a a very interesting story that that that's been you know picking up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even just explaining uh, what like how you've crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's can be very daunting, and you see investors' eyes starting to yeah. get very big. <laughs> it's like, don't worry, I've got this, and and we're a custodian here. This is our bank. We've got this. We've got that. You start to see they they they're looking at you very. Uh, very wide-eyed and you're explaining to them why you're you know the proper precautions that you have to take within this particular market um, I think again just saying SMA everyone kind of gets that and understands it conceptually especially if they've already got a portfolio they've already got a financial advisor um, this is just one additional piece that they're gonna bolt on to their existing portfolio and add a percentage to so I, I think that has the ability to um, potentially be one of the one of the easier way that you can juice uh, or that the narrative that has been going around digital assets for the past what since 2018 that yeah. institutions are coming or, or more institutional capital is coming 
is that can easily come from the financial advisory sector where Tyrone Ross quoted something on the podcast. It's like, I, I don't know the number, but I, I think he used the word trillion in it or, or like very high billion. So just because it's not a CalPERS or something like that moving around billions upon billions of dollars, little, you know, little accounts add up to a lot if it all comes in in droves. So I think that's something that is very, very interesting, like I said before, to kind of see how it shakes out over over the future. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Like I actually did like some research on the RRA market. Um, I forget the exact number, but yeah, you're right. Like it is in the trillions. Um, It's an insanely amount. Um, And from the you know, what you've seen that even in the traditional markets, the SMA is actually picking up on that end too. Like that, that trend of SMA adoption, just on the traditional sense, it's constant, it's constantly growing. And what people don't realize is like, yeah, like having a small percentage of that into the crypto market, that is an institutional line that comes in and changes the game. Um, so that's going to be very, that's going to be very, very interesting. I think um, if people haven't seen it already, or I don't know if you read it, like Bitwise did a, a survey of, I think it was like over 415 or 450 um, registered, registered investment advisors. I think like, I think was it like 76% of them have received, um, 76% of those registered investment advisors have received uh, inquiries from clients about crypto. I'm wondering how to invest and so forth. Um, I think like 69% are exploring of trying how to figure out how to allocate into crypto. Um, so there, there's clearly that conversation happening in, in, in that space. Uh, but a lot of it that I think that survey mentioned was that clarification of, of compliance. Like, are they allowed to, like, how can they facilitate it or not? Because there is no clarity on that yet. I mentioned it a couple of times and it's, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't like legal or anything like that. And, and no honestly, <laughs> the way my mind works the moment I start reading legalese, I instantly start getting tired and I just check out. So <laughs> it's it's very difficult. But with that being said, you mentioned a couple of times, and this is a very, very important part of this particular market, not only for existing players, but also people, uh, you know, a lot of the ones that we're talking about, more traditional investors that are talking with their financial advisors or RIAs about getting exposure to the space need to understand and it's a big question in terms not just of compliance but also regulatory guidance as well so can you just tell me um you know some of the some of the things that sofox has done to get the blessing of the local regulatory bodies or play with in the rules the existing rule set of the regulatory bodies and also how does that affect the coin offerings um, that you guys have on sofox because there's a laundry list and there's a different token that is catching people's ear that I'm sure uh, retail investors are asking their client or their financial advisors about day after day. Yeah, no, that's a good thing. Um, so what we do is, I mean, we're our number, th- our number one thing for like any U S company is to be as compliant as possible. Right. And uh, compliance is a huge, huge focus on our end. And we actually spend so much money on, on, on fees for that. Um, what we do is, so we, you know, we are FinCEN registered on a federal level. And then what we do is we also work state by state. So we have state by state approvals. Um, we take our model, work with each of the state regulators on the MTL side, speaking with them and ensuring that, you know, our model makes sense and do we have approved to, approval to operate. Now, there are some states that we don't, you know, we operate in not all 50 states, 
but we operate in, I think it's more than 56% of the crypto trading population. Um, and in that sense, like we make sure that, you know, we have, we have the approvals from each of those guys and so forth. Now going into the coins. <clears throat> so that, that's, that's, man, that's, that's, that's a regulatory hurdle, man, because like we, we, what we, what we list and offer is stuff that we, you know, we have gotten legal approval from. Um, we work, we'll work with our legal counsel and outside counsel to make sure that, Hey, is, is this a security or not? And if it is a security, you know, we, we, we are currently looking into how can we, you know, what licenses are required and, you know, what do we need in order to offer those for now from the coins that we offer from Bitcoin, Ether, Litecoin and so forth. Those have been approved where, you know, it's not considered security. Um, it falls under license that we have that it's been approved to, to use. Um, so that's kind of where we stand right now. I mean, any, any new coin that we look at that we want to offer, we make sure that we're speaking with legal counsel, both in and outside, ensuring that, you know, it's following, it, it falls, it falls under everything that we, you know, we have in terms of our licenses. It makes, it makes sense. And obviously that's, uh, another piece of that, that prime brokerage, um, sort of element that, that, you're, that we've been talking about pretty much this entire podcast is making sure that all these, uh, you know, the, the T's are crossed, the I's are dotted, because these are all questions that are boxes that need to be ticked before you enter the space, or even for individuals like myself, whenever we're onboarding new investors that they're asking, especially if they're in the know, some, some people that maybe are a little bit more hyped around the new cycle, they're just excited to be able to get exposure in the space. And those are typically um, high net worth individuals that, you know, from a variety of different backgrounds, typically from a startup background. So their risk tolerance is a little bit higher. But as we sort of cross this chasm to the, the, the average individual with a portfolio that they're just looking to diversify and potentially get outsized expected returns for the next five to 10 the 20 years, especially whenever you look at um, the equity markets or any, any of these other really hot markets, probably from a historical valuation perspective, digital assets become very, very um, attractive as well. But regulatory is one of those things that you have to have an understanding about um, before you jump in. So that all makes sense um, 100%. Before we wrap up the podcast, I always sort of just ask people just their general views of where they think the market might be going in the next two to three years. Before I was saying future, but then I realized that this market is incredibly fast moving. So future five years is going to look entirely different than future in two years or three years. So in the next three years, from your particular perspective in the area or the niche of the market that you work in, where do you see the next big innovations or the next potential big game changers um, happening for the market? Yeah, sure. So, you know, like this, this is going to go back to like the, the conversation about how people are waiting for these institutions coming in. Um, what I think and what we're kind of seeing is, is that, and it's coming out in the media as well, is that <clears throat> the institutions that are coming in, that I think it's going to lead to this, this change in adoption is really going to be driven by, I think, the individual and retail market, not the bigger banks, but the, the companies that are focusing on B2C, businesses to customers, right? Because <clears throat> you have the payment companies. Think about what with the announcement with PayPal coming out, right? You have Square. Those guys have access to millions and millions of individuals. And if you look at, you know, if you looked at Square's numbers, 
crypto Bitcoin trading revenue, actually, I think it, it represents 50, more than 50% of their entire revenue for the cash app. Um, and now you have, now you have, um, you know, PayPal coming in and then there's all these new, um, challenger banks, um, Neo banks that are coming in. They're going to start offering crypto and that's going to lead to a full adoption on the, um, uh, individual side. And to be honest, once that happens, the big, the bigger financial institutions, the banks who are sitting on the sidelines waiting, they're not going to have a choice, but to get it. I think you're going to, you're going to, you're going to see that in the next couple of years. Right. Um, outside of that, you know, stable coins, man, like, you know, I think that's DeFi. So just going back to DeFi and stable coins, those are the two things I think are going to be very freak. Those are going to be really interesting. Um, most people may not realize this, but in Southeast Asia, stable coins has been very, very popular and merchants are act actively using it. Um, frankly, because it does what it needs to be done, right? Like crypto, Bitcoin was created in order to transfer funds um, from peer to peer very quickly. Um, the problem was, was that Bitcoin had that volatility. What stablecoin is solving and doing today is solving that exact problem. You can transfer very quickly and simply, um, and it maintains its value, um, and it's very easily accessible. And then DeFi space, um, you know, I, I think like, I'd say that bigger like financial institutions, traditional ones need to worry because dude, like that's like, you know, like what DeFi is doing, you're big, basically being, be, being able to be your own bank, access loans, you can get yields, um, and all have that control independently without having a central counterparty. Um, I think that is going to be a, a very interesting space where, you know, you're going to start seeing people rely less on, obviously there's always going to be that relying on banks and I'm not going to say they're going to be completely disrupted, but you're going to start seeing a, dis, a, a slow change, especially in the less developed markets, right? Looking in countries where you don't normally have access to banking infrastructure. That is something I see is going to be a, a very interesting adoption and growth in, in, in that area. I, I feel like I say this all the time with podcasts and, and maybe I just don't disagree with my, my guests <laughs> nearly enough, but I totally agree with you. And, and again, I think I was talking about it on another podcast that, that I did earlier this week, um, talking about stable coins and stable coins. Again, we're sort of blessed because we live here within the U.S. We've got the world's reserve currency, stable prices for the most part, unless you know, you're living in San Francisco or New York uh, and looking to buy a, a home. But we, we've got this amazing ability that not a lot of the rest of the world uh, has experienced. And I didn't fully realize it until I was talking to other people in other parts of the world, in Asia, in New Zealand, in Latin America. And they're using this already, maybe not even for day-to-day -day purchases, but just to have uh, some, of their, some of their rainy day fund within these stable coins. So it's like if you are living in Argentina or you're living in Vietnam and specifically this year, given what everyone assumes or at least some macro people believe will be a dollar swelling event where the dollar will increase in price vis-a-vis -vis other mm. weaker developing currencies. I mean, you know, the Brazilian real, I believe is down approximately 30% versus the dollar earlier in this year. Yeah. So if you're living in those regimes and all you can simply do is take that out and if you've got an internet connection and you've got access to some decentralized finance app or some exchange and you can easily convert your local fiat into a stable coin, whether it be Tether or USDC or Paxos or anything like that, 
and you're instantly in dollars. You've got a stable store of value in medium exchange that yeah. you can use uh, at someplace else. That is a complete game changer that personally I didn't see, obviously, because we live here in the U.S., but that is one of the things that has really opened my eyes. And I wrote about it um, in one of the earlier research pieces that we did, that I did in partnership with Brave New Coin earlier this year, talking about store of value premise. This, we did this before sort of shit hit the fan with COVID and Bitcoin yeah. came to the limelight, is I, I hypothesized that this next wave of growth is going to come from the periphery, not necessarily the center in terms of developed countries, because why would they, you know, right. but you've got majority of the world's population living in these areas that are not historically within stable fiat regimes. And now you've got this ability to get access to a stable currency. We would gripe here in, in the crypto American sphere that the dollar is depreciating, but compared to other areas, it's complete night and day and a very stable um, mechanism to hold, hold your wealth in. So I, I think that is something that I'm truly, truly interested in seeing. But that being said, I know we we're going to wrap up, but, I'm, but my interest is peculiar. Do you think that more regulatory scrutiny is going to come to stablecoins specifically because governments, maybe not the U.S. or even Europe or any of the other larger um, economies, feel threatened, but some of these other uh, periphery-type economies feel threatened, and they're like, hey, we need to get some kind of coalition going here to be able to protect our local fiat regimes, because this is a real threat to our monetary policy. You know, that's a good, like, I, like, that's a good question. And I think, well, I think 100% there is going to be right. And I think this is like that regulation actually started even happening prior to stable coins, because if you think about it, the way the, the, way the banking system works, right, is that normally the central bank would have, have a view by working with your local banks, right? And because every transaction happens through either ACA, like, let's talk about the U.S., if that bank happens through ACH or through a wire transfer, the central bank has a full view on it because that activity is occurring. But then here's what happened recently. Um, and now when I say recently in the last 10 years is that parties like Venmo, PayPal, and so forth um, came in and these services where they're not actually using the banking rails to transfer funds. It's actually all happening on the, on their own private networks, right? So I could, you could, you could send me a PayPal, you know, over PayPal, you could send me $25, right? The banks, the central banks won't see that transaction unless I make that withdrawal, right? Because all that transaction ha is happening is in, within the private network. And so I think what you're kind of seeing in the central bank's concern is, is that, you know, they are, you know, they're, they're missing that activity. And now they're, not, they're actually losing that control. And that's kind of part of the reason why you're seeing more of these conversations of, Central, central banks trying to create their own stable coins because they want to have that view. And if they don't, if they don't get involved in this, then they're going to realize that the PayPal's or the Venmo's and other, other companies out there are going to disrupt it and they're no longer going to have access. So, you know, you're going to see these regulations. I think you're going to see these regulations get, getting more involved because at the end of the day, if the central bank doesn't have any relationship to it, then what are they going to do? Um, and only way for them to do that is by, Unfortunately, putting a, you know, either creating their own coin and then setting up regulations where only they can operate it. So that's, I, th I think, like, 
it's it's inevitable to to see. Super. I I think I don't know how it's how it's all gonna pan out. I think there might be. Well, I guess if there's some form of synchronized coalition, there could be some, you know, more punitive measures. But I think we're a little bit a ways away from that, given regulatory bodies don't even know how to deal with the existing currencies that we have or digital assets that they still feel falls within the hash marks or their good graces. So it'll be really interesting to see how that all pans out over the next uh, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months. But regardless, I think we're firmly in alignment saying that DeFi, and we, we both consider stable coins a part of that ecosystem, is one of the one of the more interesting innovations that could potentially be a game changer and or quite disruptive um, moving forward. So hopefully it'll be an additional uh, value added service that Soapbox could layer on um, in the future to continue to add more and more value to the clients. Yeah, and, uh, it, it, I, I'm sorry, just I, I think it'd be really cool to see if uh, like for all these new state, like all these stablecoin issuance right now are independent, right? So if there's like a like a self-regulated body that ends up coming in where a co like you said, like a coalition that comes in and starts regulate, like, you know, as all the main participants come in and they start doing self-regulation, that could be really, really interesting to see in coming like coming years. Yeah, I, I obviously I hope that doesn't happen because that's not going to be, they're not going to be there to <laughs> pat stable coins on the back. That's for yeah. sure. Um, but hope, but hopefully uh, we don't see that or we see some uh, more thoughtful process towards um, regulating stable coins or, or anything like that. But with that, we'll wrap up the podcast. Daniel, I want to thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule um, to be able to jump on and talk about all the nitty gritty um, in terms of liquidity, early days, and then unfortunately needing to talk about regulatory and, and then some more of the legal stuff. But I, I really do appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to, to hop on and have a chat with us. I had a blast being on. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. Thank you so much. I will see you next time on the Crypto and Muay Thai podcast. Stay safe. I will talk to you soon. Bye.